On top of that, only weeks ago, your Spotify rap reminded you that the only constant thing this year was your poor choice of music. So we find ourselves evaluating the last year, but at the same time, the second thing happens is that we start planning on the new year, and so we find ourselves making New Year's resolutions. And I don't have anything against New Year's resolutions, but clearly, as you can probably tell, I am not one to make many New Year's resolutions, and certainly when I do, I don't keep them. But all this to say that we find ourselves squeezed between a season of unfulfilled expectations, Christmas, and the pressure of a season to produce new exciting expectations in the new year. And the reality is that the pressure of this season can be really, really hard on us. It can be hard on our hearts. This season, I believe, amplifies the sense of restlessness that Augustine talks about when he says our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. But what if I told you that all these things we use to measure whether our year was good or not are ultimately not what life is about? What if I told you that the Bible doesn't call us to self-fulfillment or even to material success at the end of the new year? Now, as we look at the new year, we live in the tension of these two truths. And I will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we find ourselves in, in the tension of two truths. One of them, on the one hand, is that we know that in His common grace, God provides us with seasons, with fresh starts, right? And so the, the change of the calendar marks the new season for us, a new year, an exciting prospect. But on the other hand, we also know that life goes on. I don't know about you, uh, I don't know at all what 2022 has in store for us, but I can tell you for sure that in the new year there will be good days and there will be bad days. If you look at our fridge or our home, we already have a wedding invitation hanging there. We have um, baby shower invitations. So we know that in 2022, some people will have some of the best days of their lives. I know as a fact that here at Trinity we'll be welcoming babies. We know that for many of us, we'll have the best days of our lives in 2022. Heck, my brother just got engaged earlier this week, and so and they're visiting us. Um, and so I know that we will be having some amazing new days. On the other hand, I also know that there will be bad days. The coronavirus doesn't know that the fireworks and the drop of the ball in Times Square mark the beginning of a new year. Sin, conflict, and death do not care about the calendar turning its pages. And yet, the Bible gives us hope. It does not point us to the things in this world for us to find hope, but it points us to the path of blessedness and happiness. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And by, when I talk about happiness, I do not mean like this happy and clappy existence with everything in Skittles and rainbows but a, a life of true and immovable joy. Yeah. A life of joy that, is, that cannot be moved or determined by our circumstances. As we look at our passage this morning, I want us to realize that true blessedness is possible and that the Bible tells us how to be blessed. As a matter of fact, it tells us there are only two paths in this life. The path that leads to life or blessedness and the path that leads to death. And we would do well this morning to consider these two paths as we await the new year, as we make plans, and as we look ahead. In order to do that, how about we pray? Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you, Father, that you, in your kindness, spoke to us through your word, that you revealed yourself 
so that we would be able to draw from your word and get to know you. Lord, I pray that as I speak this morning, that I would not um, talk out of my own understanding, Father, that I, would, that I wouldn't say anything that just comes from my flesh. And Father, if there's anything that I say that, goes, that does not go according to your word, Father, I pray for you to fold down and to be forgotten. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for speaking to us today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, I want to start this morning by looking at the first two verses of Psalm 1. And I want you to notice that basically what the author is asking here for of us is whose voice are we listening to? Verse 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 say this. They say, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You see, Psalm 1 is a psalm that was written together with Psalm 2, and they were written as a twofold uh, introduction to the Psalter. And if you don't know the word Psalter, it's just the collection of 150 psalms that we have in Scripture. But in these two psalms, the author summarizes what the psalms are all about. It starts in Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 can be easily summarized by saying this, there are only two paths in life, like we just said, the path that leads to life and the path that leads to death. From then on, every psalm will reference back to this idea that there is a path of life and a path of death. Like I said, one path leads to a blessed life, or what philosophers would call the good life. And the author here, very succinctly, tells us in only two verses what this path looks like. He starts with the words, blessed is the man. And I want us to zoom into these two words. And I want us to ask the question, what does the word blessed actually mean? Because the world sells us a hashtag blessed that is superficial and flashy. But the word blessed is not superficial happiness that comes and goes, but a deep sense of joy from God's grace in my life. There's a big difference between the Bible's word blessed and the world's hashtag blessed. Now, this is great news because this biblical happiness that I'm talking about, this biblical blessedness that I'm talking about is not dependent on something as fickle and and inconsistent as our uh, circumstances. You see, our circumstances are kind of like Dunkin' Donuts. You never know if it's going to be good or bad. I'm not hating on them. I literally had it this morning. That's exactly why I know. (laughs) But this biblical joy or happiness depends not on us, or our circumstances, but it depends on our never-changing God, a God that is good and mighty. This happiness, this biblical joy depends not only on God, but in His grace, which is ever-present for His children. Let me ask you a question. We all want happiness, right? I think we all do. And the Bible actually encourages us to find happiness. The Bible actually encourages us to find blessedness. And the question is, how do we go about doing that? And the author tells us here by describing this blessed man. He said, blessed is the man that, and then he'll describe him. This blessed man is basically like an archetype, if you will, of those who are blessed by God. And he tells us two main things about this blessed man. Number one, the blessed man does not listen to the voice of the wicked. And we find that in verse two, in verse one, I'm sorry, And I believe I've said this before uh, here, but St. Augustine described sin as an undoing of ourselves. He said that God created us from nothing and that when we sin, we are basically undoing ourselves and making ourselves into nothingness again. 
I don't think that is metaphysically true, but he paints a good picture. It's, it, it rings true, doesn't it? You see, the problem with sin is that it is always progressive. Here the author describes the progressive nature of sin, and he does so by describing what the blessed man does not do. We see an image of a man who, as James Johnson, a commentator, says, settles into sin by stages. First, he walks, then he stops and stands, and finally he sits down. You see, first, he is influenced by the sinners, then he identifies with them, and finally he spreads sin to others through his mockery and his scoffing. And so I want to break this down. I want you to see what this actually means. What does it mean that the blessed man... um, Well, the blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Well, first, the counsel of the wicked, or or walking in the counseling of the wicked, means that the blessed man here is not influenced by the way of the world. Now, we hear about the wicked, and we might immediately get an image in our minds of people who we considered really wicked, right? We think of Hitler, we think of Stalin, we think of bin Laden. But the reality is that when the Bible talks about the wicked, it is not talking about world leaders that have caused a lot of destruction. The wicked are simply those that do not walk according to the word of God. Those that have rebelled against God, and instead of following his word, they do the exact opposite of what his word says. They do as they please. Or as it says in the book of Judges, where where Judges had said, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the wicked. These are the wicked. Not evil people, uh, you know, not terribly evil people in our own standards, but actually the Bible talks about the wicked as those that walk opposing the, or oppose, opposite to the word of God. This also refers to the way that the world influenced the way that we look at life. When the Bible talks about walking in the counsel of the wicked, it talks about the way that the, the world influences the way that we look at life. We walk in the counsel of the wicked when we allow it to adjust our moral compass. It changes the way that we think. It actually even changes the things that we laugh at. Whenever, the, whenever we're walking in the counsel of the wicked, that's when we start explaining away our sin, making excuses for the way that we live, or maybe even not seeing sin for what it truly is. So the first mark of the blessed man is that he is not influenced by the ways of this world. And then it follows by, he follows by saying this, he says, nor stands in the way of sinners. Then the blessed man then does not stand in the way of sinners. And the word way refers to a lifestyle or a path that you follow through life. In this case, sin becomes habitual. Repentance comes rarely. And our hearts get hardened. As I once heard Jen Wilkins say, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, she said something along the lines of this. She said, There are two ways to get rid of guilt. One is to repent, and the second way is to continue to sin until your heart gets hardened and feels no more guilt. That is the way of sinners. Do you see the progression of sin here? First we walk, then we stop and stand, and finally we sit. And that's what the author calls the seat of scoffers. He says in verse, at the end of verse 1, he says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And this is kind of a weird language. Growing up, I knew people that read this and said, oh, this means we don't get to go to the movie theaters. Don't think this is quite what the psalmist had in mind. (laughs) But what did he have in mind when he says that the blessed man does not sit in the seat of scoffers? 
Uh, this means, or this refers to the state where sin becomes laughable. When sin becomes a laughing matter. Scoffers are those who laugh at the things of God. A hardened heart leads to mockery. Mockery of God. Mockery of the things of God. Mockery of the people of God. And as the same commentator I mentioned earlier says, mockers are missionaries of wickedness. By laughing at the things of God, by mocking those who want to obey God, they lead others away from Him. And this completes then the progression of sin that we see here in the psalm. Notice basically the author is saying, if we were to summarize what he just said, he's saying this, the blessed man does not listen to the voice of the world, and as a result, he doesn't sin. Simple, right? So that's the negative, right? He starts by giving us the negative, what the blessed man does not do, and then he comes to a positive where he tells us what the blessed man does do. And he says that the blessed man listens to the voice of God. Verse 2 says this, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Basically, the blessed man listens to the voice of God. Church, there is real blessing in reading Scripture. There's real blessing in spending time in the revealed Word of God. Now, you may be hearing something that I'm not saying, which is, if I read the Bible, God's going to bless me. That's not quite what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is blessedness in reading Scripture, not because you get something by doing it, but because you get God when you're drawn near to Scripture. You're not doing something for God to earn a blessing, but because God, uh, because, because you're reading from His Word, you get God, and you become like Him. You see, the Word of God is alive and active, the, the author of Hebrews tells us. And we don't read it as something we do for God, like I said, but we read it because of what God has done in us. And what He does is we read it. We don't read it because we have to. We read it because when we are in Christ, Christ in us causes us to delight in the words of God. We delight in the law of the Lord. So the blessed man not only does not listen to the world and doesn't sin, but he listens to the voice of God through Scripture, and these causes him to become like God. Easy peasy, right? Now, I want to take a moment here. Because up to this point, what I've been saying can be interpreted as a to-do list for us to be blessed. And that's not the case. I want to take a moment here because I do not want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying in the new year, read the Bible more so that God will bless you. If we're not careful, we might read this as a list of steps or keys to blessedness. It may sound a bit formulaic, and the kind of stuff that, that we may find, you know, in the bookshelves at the checkout line in Hobby Lobby, right? Not everything there is bad, by the way, so don't, don't hear what I'm saying. But this is not at all what this passage is saying. This is not telling us how to live our best life now. This is, this is teaching us how to find God. You see, the grammar in the original here suggests that the blessed man not only does not walk or stand or sit with the wicked, but that he never has. He's not saying, in order to be blessed, you have to stop doing these things. He's saying, those that are blessed are those that have never done this, that have never listened to the counsel of the wicked, that had never walked in the way of sinners, and that have never sat in the seat of scoffers. 
I think you're getting where I'm, I think you, you, I can see it in your faces. I think you're understanding what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this disqualifies every single one of us. Because how many of us have not listened to the counsel of the wicked? How many of us have not questioned the things of God? How many of us do not even still at times find doubt in our hearts? Dear church, this disqualifies us all from the blessed life. Because no one can do this perfectly. So let me ask you a question. Is this bad news? Sounds like it, right? But it isn't. This is actually great news. Because that blessed man that the psalmist talks about is not you and it's not me. That blessed man, the only man in the history of earth that actually can live up to the standard, is not you, it's not me, it's not your neighbor, but it's Jesus Christ himself. And the reason this is good news is because in Christianity, we do not do things in order to achieve blessedness. We do not have to do things in order to, to carry favor with God, to earn salvation. We do not do that. You see, in Christianity, blessedness is not achieved, but received. We did not have to appease a God. We did not have to impress them with our moral perfection we just have to have faith in him and he gives us all these things you see that jesus christ the son of god whose birth we celebrated yesterday is the blessed man and he alone can live up to the standard of the blessed man our god church always takes the initiative our god is not giving us a to-do list in scripture our god is giving us himself in the reading of the word. You see, the good news of the gospel is that all the blessings in this psalm have become yours if you are in Christ. They are a gift to you through faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.3 says it this way. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And as we read the first two verses of Psalm 1, we should rejoice because these, bless, these blessings are ours. They have been given to us. For those that have their faith in Christ, those that have called upon the name of Jesus, these blessings are already ours. John Stark, a pastor in New York City, puts it this way. He says, these are all things that Christ has done for us. But when we become Christians, our lives become so identified with Christ that what is said of Christ, died, buried, risen, exalted, and revealed in glory is also said of us. What is true of Christ is true of us. What belongs to Christ belongs to us. Obviously, as we come to Christ, we don't have it all figured out. And you see the temptation is to, to read the psalm and to create to tears the blessed ones and the wicked ones. And we also want to put ourselves in one or two, one of the categories, don't we? The reality is that there is one category, and that is of the wicked, that includes everyone in creation. And yet, the status of righteous, the status of blessed, is given to us. Not because we deserve it. Not because we're better than anyone. We do not think we're better than anyone. We just know that we need a Savior. 
that we can do it on our own. Church, this blessing that we're reading about is received and not achieved. And because of it, we can rest on it. Because of it, we can walk in full confidence. Because if I didn't achieve it, I can't lose it either. It was given to me as a gift, and I can rest in it. Church, this is no longer a to-do list for those who are in Christ. But it is the description of of life that we ought to expect as believers. Because you see, when you become Christ's, when you become one in Him, you start becoming like Him. And so these things, of course we should walk like the blessed man is telling us. But not in order to achieve anything, just because we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit of God in us. He causes us to desire these things. He causes us to delight in His Word and not the things of the world. How about we look at the next two verses? Here again, we'll see a contrast. And what I want you to see from verses 3 and 4 is that the righteous prosper while the wicked perish. Verse 3 says this. It says, He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Church, this is describing the blessed man. It says that he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Here, the psalmist then is describing the life of those who live, in, uh, who live this blessed life. And he's going to contrast it with those that are wicked. He tells us two things, pretty straightforward. The righteous will prosper, the wicked will perish. And I want you to notice a couple of things about the righteous. The righteous are rooted in the word. The image of water often refers to the word and the spirit of God. So when the author tells us that a tree, uh, sorry, that a tree is planted by streams of water, he is reminding us that the righteous live by and in the word of God. This reminds us of Jesus' call to abide in him. Remember John 15. One of the main ways we abide in Christ is through the reading of his word. So let me ask you, as you are planning for the next year, have you decided, have you planned yet how you're going to be reading your Bible this next year? Because from experience, let me tell you, if you don't plan on it, you will not do it. And so would you take a moment this week to pray and to ask, Lord, how would you want me to read my Bible this year? There's not, there, there's not a right or wrong way. I mean, there's definitely wrong ways of reading it, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But what I mean is like, just pick it up and read it, but plan on how you're going to do it. Because if you just do it willy-nilly, you're just not going to do it. So I would suggest, pick up a Bible reading plan. Just go online. Ligonier has a bunch of reading plans that are super helpful. There's a lot of Bible apps. And I'm getting way out of my notes. But I do want to encourage you, please read your Bible, not to check a box, not to impress God, not to impress your neighbor, but in order for you to get God, for you to be a knight, to, to abide in Him. Ray Ortland, uh, Dane Ortland describes our reading of the Word and our prayer as the inhaling of God and exhaling of God. As we are reading His Word, we are inhaling His Word. And as we are praying to Him, we are exhaling So let us abide in Him by reading the the Word of God. The second thing I want you to notice is that the righteous bear fruit. 
The fact that the righteous uh, prosper and bear fruit doesn't really mean material prosperity, right? That's the prosperity gospel. Let me just make this plain and simple. The Bible does not promise promise you that you will be rich. The Bible does not promise you that you will be healthy. The Bible does not promise you material prosperity. But as the Bible, uh, the ESV study Bible says it, this prosperity, uh, or to prosper, it means that he succeeds in bringing benefit to others. We live then, not for self-fulfillment, nor for self-promotion, but for the glory of God and for the love of our neighbor. Church, the righteous are also stable and unmoved by circumstances. When the, when the author talks about the tree, he, he paints this picture of stability, of being unmoved. And you see, when we have our roots in the Word of God, we are nourished by it, and it strengthens us against the winds of the world. So we are unmoved by the winds of change. We're not moved by false teaching or even by suffering. This leads me to my next point. It says that the righteous do not wither. It might be worth clarifying, though, that in this imagery, when the author talks about withering, he doesn't mean the change of leaves during the winter or during different seasons. It means that the tree will never die. So what this does mean is that even as we go through hard times, we will not perish. That even as, as, as suffering comes our way, as circumstances change, we will not perish. Even when we suffer, we remain connected to the source and are unmoved by our circumstances because we are anchored in Christ. Even when we lose our grip on Him, He never loses His grip on us. And then he compares that to the life of the wicked. And he says that the wicked are like chaff. They are unstable. Whenever we live uh, our lives for ourselves, and we do what is right in our own eyes, or when we follow our hearts like the world tells us, things are not stable because we are not stable. (laughs) Things are rocky because our hearts are rocky. The Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. And so when we live for ourselves and according to what we think is right, things are going to get rocky. Then it tells us that the wicked, they do not prosper, they perish. This again is a reminder that the prosperity the Bible talks about cannot be material prosperity. Because we all know that the wicked can get very rich. But you know what they can never do? They can never truly prosper in ways that ultimately matter. Sure, the wicked can become rich. They can be successful in the eyes of man. They can be famous. But when these things are what move us, they are never enough to satisfy our restless hearts. If not, you can ask Jim Carrey, who in a commencement address in 2014 told the graduating class, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous. And do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that that, is not, uh, that that is not the answer. Church, true prosperity is not things that we can see in this world. But, as, but true prosperity are those things that live for eternity. The second thing that it tells us about the wicked is that not only do they not prosper, but they are moved by the wind. This means that the wicked are moved by circumstances. You see, when your happiness depends on circumstances, your happiness is fleeting because life is always changing. If you just do you, boo, like the world tells you, 
You become your own authority. You become your own anchor. You become your own, your own savior. So when things get rocky, you better hope you're anchored to something better than yourself. Because I don't have to convince you how limited you are, how unable you are to be stable on your own. Whenever we live for ourselves, whenever we do what we think is right, when circumstances change, we, rem we are reminded how tiny we are. And we better be anchored to something greater than us, where we can actually find stability. What the author is telling us here is that all it takes for chaff to be moved is light wind. Or Pocahontas singing the colors of the wind or something. I don't know. But you may be thinking, well, I know many people who don't know Jesus, and yet they're prospering. They look happy. They look healthy. They look fulfilled. And yeah, that may, that may be the case. But let's remember Jesus' words when he said, for what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall, what shall a man give in return for his soul? Church, what good is it to build empires in this world if in the eyes of eternity they are but chaff? What good is it to, to spend ourselves for things in this world when reality, when what truly matters is not in this world, but in the world to come? This leads us to the last portion of the psalm, verses six, uh, 5 and 6. And it says this, it says, verse 5 says this, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist ends this psalm with one last contrast. Here he compares the destiny of both the blessed man and the wicked. And just as the rest of the psalm, the, contract, the contrast is pretty stark. There's a big difference. The first thing that he tells us is that God will judge the wicked. The author breaks down what the wicked can expect for the future. And he tells us that they will not stand in the judgment and they will not be part of the community of the righteous, meaning the family of God. Now I want to take a moment to explain why the psalmist talks about judgment. We know from Scripture that in the day of the Lord, when all things come to an end, the day of the Lord, we will all stand before the Father and we will be judged. But why, you may be asking yourself, why does he judge? Why would a good, a good God judge? Why doesn't he just say, hey, everyone's welcome? Well, you see, our God is a holy God. And holiness is not just an attribute of God. Holiness is who he is. Holy is who he is and what he is. God is holy and he cannot sin nor can he stand in sin. And as Jackie Hill Perry puts it, to say that God is holy is to say that God is God. All of God's ways, such as his moral purity and how it sets him apart from all the, this perverse, untrue, lawless, and unrighteous, uh, comes out of his being. No one told or taught God how to be good. That is simply who he is, and he can be no other way. On the other hand, we are not holy. We're sinners. I don't think I need to convince you of that. We are sinners. We were born in sin, and we are by nature sinners and rebels. 
as a holy God, he cannot stand before sin without judging it. And to ask him not to judge isn't only morally wrong, but it goes against his very nature. Perry later continues, and she says this. She says, It is too common for men to fancy God, not as he is, but as they would have him. Strip him of his excellency for their own security. If they had it their way, the guilty could go about life unpunished, freed from judgment as underneath the stayed gavel of God. The problem with that is this. To want God to withhold justice is to want God to make himself an abomination. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord, tells us Proverbs 17.15. And she continues by saying, this would be for him to become a loathsome, detestable being, more like Satan than, than God himself. It is an impossible ask and borderline blasphemous, so as God is, he will remain holy and therefore just. Do you see what she's saying? This is why God has to judge. He would be inconsistent with his nature to withhold judgment. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. Which is why the author tells us that the wicked will not stand in judgment, meaning they, they cannot go through judgment and still stand. God has to judge. But the good news, church, is that he is a just judge. Not only is he a just judge, but he is also a loving father. So he judges, and he judges justly, but he is also a loving father that has provided payment for those that love him. This leads us to the last part of the psalm in verse 6 that says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The righteous will also stand in judgment. The difference here is the destiny, the final destination, right? You see, the righteous will stand before, uh, before God in judgment. And one day, we will all stand before Him, before the judge of the universe. And as a good judge that He is, like I said, no sin will ever go unpunished. Every sin will be paid for. The question is, when you consider your own sin... It would be worth asking the question, who will pay for my own sin? Will I, or will I take the offer of Jesus to pay for my own sin so that I can stand before God and be loved by him? You see, when we talk about the righteous, we're not talking about those who are good. We talked a lot about the righteous and the wicked, and that really does sound like we're put, making tears, that we're putting ourselves in the good team against the bad. That is not at all what this is doing. It is actually unchristian to view yourself that way. You see, the righteous are not the good ones. We have not, whenever we talk about the righteous, we're not talking about those that have it all figured out. We're not talking about those that are morally better than others. We are talking about fellow sinners who were unstable in all their ways, who were unable to save themselves and have thrown themselves in the hands of a merciful Father. Amen. That is who we are. Amen. We are righteous, not because of anything that we have done. We are righteous, not because of anything that we have personally achieved. We are righteous only because we have called upon the name of Jesus, who died so that we would live. He gave us his righteousness as a gift. He made us justified before God in heaven 
Church, the sentence knows the way of the righteous. When, it, when, when the psalmist tells us that God knows the way of the righteous, this means a lot more than just knowing us, knowing about us. It even goes further than knowing our future or our destination. But this knowing the way of the righteous indicates an intimate involvement, involvement I'm sorry, of a transcendent God in our personal lives. God doesn't just know our destiny. He doesn't, know, he doesn't just know who we are. But He has personally called us to Himself. And He will walk us all the way. When God, when God says that He knows our way, it means that He knows our beginning, He knows our end, and He will walk us every step of the way. Let me close this morning. Just pointing out something that may not always be obvious. But as we read this, this doesn't sound like a mean, grumpy old man that sits in heaven ready to judge. He's not some random deity looking for those that displease him. This God that we see here in Psalm 1 is the very God that is a good judge that is a just judge, that is a good father. You know what he calls himself? When he talks about himself, he describes himself as this. He describes himself as patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he doesn't just say that with his words, but he has lived it with his actions, given his grace. He is a good judge. As he remains just, and He judges us, He also offers us mercy. Not by sweeping our sins under the rug, but by paying for our sins through His only Son, Jesus Christ. Church, the new year is starting in merely five days. Here, the psalmist is pointing the way to the good life. The way to the good life is not more doing. The way to the good life is actually not things that you should do for God, but the way to the good life is receiving believing, delighting, and resting in the things that Jesus already did for you. Do you want to have a blessed new year? Well, let me point you to the words of Dane Ortland, who says, Walk with God, soak in His Word, take His yoke upon you. You will be blessed, truly happy, with the happiness the winds of, tra of trial cannot blow away. Amen. Let us worship this morning. Thank you.